Episode 123, The Secret to Healthcare Business Success is Collaboration. Today, I speak with Mark Tomeno, a healthcare private equity investor over at Welsh, Carson, Anderson, and Stowe. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. My conversation with Mark Tomeno today covers Mark's takeaways from the recent JP Morgan conference. He talks about trends and opportunities he thinks the most promising innovations will capitalize upon and how to evaluate the value of those innovations compared to their risk-adjusted returns. See, I'm using my new finance vocabulary word. But wait until near the end of the conversation when Mark offers up a big tip, how to focus on collaboration as a business driver. For more info on Mark, go to welshcarson.com. My name is Stacy Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Mark. Stacy, thanks. It's good to be with you. Recently, actually, by the time this airs, it'll be several weeks ago, but you got back from the JP Morgan conference. Give us some inside scoop. What happened there that those of us who did not attend might be intrigued by? Sure. Well, you know, this was my 13th year attending JP Morgan, and I would say humorously that. You would have done quite well if you had taken a long position in umbrellas this year. It was wet and windy, <laughs> uh, which, Stacy, if you've been there, you know is doubly bad because most of the conference happens around town, not inside of the West and St. Francis. Uh, but seriously, you know, this year is one that I would characterize relative to other years was very robust in terms of activity. Uh, everyone as you might imagine, is always looking ahead at this conference, you know, figuratively and literally. But with the change of administration, the natural question on everyone's mind was, what does President Trump mean to the healthcare markets and in particular investment opportunities? Yeah, because word on the street that I heard was it was pencils down. You know, like those election results came back and any deal that was in process of being signed just kind of what got put on hold. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And, you know, beyond the, the gut instinct that most of us had that Obamacare would be repealed or at the very least peeled back and that kind of Trumpian free market principles would breathe life into the healthcare competitive landscape. I do think there was a fair amount of uncertainty and, you know, where there's uncertainty, there's risk and volatility, which provides opportunities for both gain and loss. And so, you know, it was an environment that think caused everyone to say, you know, we're always thoughtful in this business, but this was one where, you know, the old saying that patience is a virtue really resonated. I think people are going to sit tight for the foreseeable future, not rush into anything and uh, wait to see how this unfolds. Well, that brings up an interesting dynamic, which I hadn't really thought about until someone mentioned this, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, that if you're a venture capitalist, such as yourself, for example, how you make money is you pick kind of high-risk investments. 
you know, you sort of run away from the low risk investments because with the higher risk comes higher return. You mentioned that with volatility comes, you know, opportunity for big gains and big losses. Would that be true now? I mean, are some very wily and highly risk tolerant people <laughs> signing things up left and right because prices have tumbled? Or what do you think? Let me take the risk return uh, topic for a moment. When you invest, you generally are looking for what I would call a a risk adjusted rate of return, which goes directly to your point. The more risk something has, the more return you're going to expect. So, you know, if you look at a uh, an opportunity and you ascribe a certain amount of risk to it, then generally speaking, when you go to underwrite an investment decision, you're likely going to be putting a lower value on that. You know, the old saying that the greatest success factor in the outcome of an investment is the price you pay. Now, when it comes to healthcare, there it can be uh, relatively risk-free. For example, for years and years, when large employers were providing their employees with fully funded insurance benefits, uh, it was great to be a provider. But the biggest element of risk, quite honestly, is what's going to happen in terms of government policy. So two examples of that. We generally stay away from investments where there's what we refer to as reimbursement risk. Reimbursement risk essentially means that pricing could change if the government changes reimbursement. Similarly, if you just look at kind of one of the hallmarks of Obamacare, which was access to insurance, the so-called exchanges, well, with the prospect of Obamacare being repealed, there's a big question about whether these exchanges are going to be open for business for individuals and small groups to go purchase insurance. So those two elements of government or health policy actually inject quite a amount of risk into uh, the equation. And then I'll say one other thing as you think about you know, some of what the Trump administration has discussed in terms of removing the uh, the state or geographic barriers to where insurance plans can compete. You know, that's going to introduce a level of competition across state lines that's, you know, not generally been experienced in healthcare. Ultimately, more competition means uh, lower pricing unless you really got defensible bases of, of differentiation. And so I think all of these things introduce a level of risk because investors generally project out a certain financial performance over five to seven years. And with these kinds of things happening, you know, maybe you have visibility into the next 18 months, which means that a good three to five years of your investment horizon is quite opaque. And, and therein lies the challenge. I'm going to stick a pin in a couple of things that you said and ask you uh, follow-up questions because I'm very curious about. When you say stay away from reimbursement risk, you know, one of the things I have noticed about innovations today, a lot of what I'm talking about is technology innovations. Many of them are highly dependent on value-based care or on chronic care management or on bundled payments or whatever the new word for that's going to be. There's a striking and, and startling percentage of tech which is almost valueless in an FFS world. Are you considering those kinds of things, reimbursement, you know, like at, at risk for reimbursement changes or is value-based care kind of a given and you're talking about nuances? 
It really depends on how you are exposing yourself to value-based care. Now, let, let me give you a simple example. If I was going to invest in a new business model that was going to deliver care and it was going to be an integrated delivery offering that uh, combined acute care venues, post-acute care venues, home venues. And uh, I anticipated that at some point certain populations were going to be paid on an episode basis as opposed to an individual treatment basis. I might consider that to be a level of reimbursement risk because quite honestly, we don't necessarily know what that episode is going to cost. We don't know how it's going to be paid. It's unclear. Now, so I wouldn't necessarily take an investment in a provider that was going to be relying on episodic care claims. However, if I was going to invest in a technology claims adjudication system that was going to adjudicate fee-for-service claims, and at some point as fee-for-service claims evolved into bundled payment claims or episodic claims, I'm likely going to continue to be the, the administrative platform or the pipe through which those transactions flow from a provider to a payer, from a payer to a provider. So in that case, I own the pipe. I'm really indifferent as to the timing in the nature of the transition from fee-for-service to pay-for-value. So again, it, it comes down to, are you really exposed to the timing and uncertainty of the adoption of these new payment models? Or are you core infrastructure? You benefit either way. And in that particular case, since we know the population is aging, we know people are living longer, I think it's fair to say that there will be more claims tomorrow than there are today. I'd much rather be the company that's the exchange vehicle for those claims, the payment vehicle for those claims, as opposed to the deliverer of services hoping to be reimbursed by some form of claim. Got it. Okay. So another thing you said was that between now and 18 months from now, it's um, a bit murky what's going to happen. But beyond that, three to five years, we're on the darker side of completely opaque. So what signals are we looking for in the marketplace? Like what would need to happen for the investment community or you yourself to feel like you had more basis to make sound business decisions moving forward? Like, what are you looking for? You know, it's, it's interesting. You described me as a, as a venture capitalist earlier. And while my focus is really more mature, developed companies as a kind of middle market private equity investor, I will say that the answer to that question is very much relying on some of the skills of a venture capitalist. That is being able to look at things from a very macro perspective, understanding broad trends. And I always say to people, one of the, I think the, the simplest ways to be successful in investing is try to understand why a company is going to be bigger and more valuable in the future than it is today. So specifically, what I look at are demand drivers. Why would demand for a particular firm's services or solutions be higher in the future? And, you know, so right now I'll just paint a picture of a couple of trends that are the tailwinds of certain investment opportunities. We all know today, for example, that more and more financial responsibility for healthcare is getting pushed to the consumer. That's a result of employers want to save money, 
They're introducing high deductible plans. They're using HSAs as a funding vehicle. So that means fundamentally that consumers are going to be bearing more cost. So as we look at investment opportunities that may benefit from that, being able to deliver technologies to employers or payers that actually help dull the pain on an employee or a member by shifting this financial burden, it's actually going to make it easier for them to do that. And so another example would be that if you are a big believer that most waste in medicine today comes from redundancy or variations in the way physicians practice medicine, you could look at a piece of technology that actually takes evidence-based guidelines and presents them to a physician at the point of care through a laptop or a mobile device that actually helps to automate the clinical decision-making so that certain things that are going to be ineffective on a particular patient are avoided and certain things that will be effective are pointed to based upon that particular patient's, what we refer to as longitudinal health record. Those two examples, I think, are good examples of where, you know, if you just step back and look at the treetops, you can predict these things are going to be demanded. And therefore, if you invested them at the right stage, you're, go- you're going to have a winner. These are things which are true regardless, really, of which way the wind blows in the Trump administration. That's right. I mean, the, the reality is, is that we all are going to be paying more for healthcare in the future. And likewise, I think technologies are going to be available that enable deliverers of care to be more personalized, more patient-centered in the future. We're in the very early innings of both of those things. So as we think about, again, the value proposition to the, the actual paying customer, it comes down to you know fundamentally two things. One is Am I reducing cost? And the interesting thing about reducing cost, Stacey, is what's cost reduction to one party is lost revenue to another. So if I as a payer, a consumer, or a health plan as a payer, or a self-funded employer as a payer, wants to reduce their overall cost of health care, the suppliers are actually going to have less revenue, the physicians the, the drug manufacturers, the de- device manufacturers. So when it comes down to investing in businesses and healthcare, you really want to make sure you're either delivering a cost reduction solution or a revenue enhancement solution. Those two value propositions, in my view, are the most important value propositions to get your arms around when you're investing in healthcare. It's funny that you mention it because I was going to mention it relative to waste in medicine. Because as soon as you said that, I mean, of course, that makes perfect sense if you're looking at it from the outside in a very rational way. But being intimately involved in the economics of healthcare, as are you, if you start following the dollar, what you realize is redundancy makes certain people a lot of money, especially redundancy in diagnostics and procedures and the things which are reimbursed heavily. So I can see who the innovation is targeted to and who you're selling it to, you know, or positioning it for could make all the difference. Finding the person that has the impetus and the incentive to reduce that cost. That's right. The other thing I think that, you know, most people are going to become keenly aware of is that Providers, physicians, hospitals, ambulatory practices 
are really going to have to start thinking about how to competitively differentiate themselves. You know, the same way that I say that capital is a commodity, so we as investors really have to differentiate ourselves before we ever even have the opportunity to invest. And we do that by establishing a credible, authentic relationship with the company and their leadership who we wish to invest in. That that relationship becomes the differentiator. It's the same thing with medicine. And so patient acquisition, patient satisfaction, patient engagement uh, are going to be what I would call table stakes capabilities for anybody who's practicing medicine in the future. What innovation or new initiatives centered on improving patient engagement in healthcare decision-making have you seen out there that's especially intriguing? I'll share a business that we've invested in a number of years ago called GetWell Network, which you know I think uh, manifests a lot of the innovation that I was describing earlier. GetWell Network provides a software, a technology platform to acute care hospitals that essentially focuses on uh, improving the patient experience when they're in the bed in an acute care hospital. What's interesting about this technology is that now that so many health systems and hospital executives are saying, hey, we want to move the patient through the hospital as swiftly as possible without compromising outcomes. But most of the lower cost care venues are now post-acute. And they're saying, we want to be able to follow that patient once they're discharged and leave the four walls of the hospital. So what we're finding is, is that the ability to stay in touch with those patients, to keep those patients informed, to be able to identify patients that need to come in for a checkup, to be able to support the family members of patients. It's all going into this, I think, relatively new but critical competency of developing a brand in a particular geography so that when that patient has the need for medical attention, confronted with you know a plethora of options, urgent care, the local drugstore, the emergency room, a telehealth provider, All of these new venues for delivering care, whether brick and mortar or remote, are competing for a patient's attention. So I think a company like GetWell Network is really trying to essentially lay the cabling between all of those that are in the business of delivering care and, quite honestly, increasingly becoming integrated, or even if they're not integrated through a delivery system, they've got to be connected. Because if I'm a patient and I go into my local urgent care one day and then I go to my doctor the next day, then I go to a specialist who I've referred to, if I've got three separate visits and they all are seeing me for the first time, the way in which my care is being coordinated is suboptimal. And so technologies that enable that communication and that coordination are going to be hugely important to driving down the you know, systemic costs of the system. And now go back to if you're a health system executive, what is it that you want to do? You want to make sure that when that patient leaves your hospital and they go into Dr. Uh, Jane's office, that that you own that relationship. You may even want to own Dr. Jane's practice, but if you don't, you want to at least know that that's your patient going in there. So you're looking at 
some of the care coordination technologies that are cropping up, and there's a lot of them. I mean, every day I run across a new mobile app that's designed to keep the patient within arm's reach once they exit the facility, you know, to make sure that the facility is top of mind and it's the most convenient. You know, if I'm carrying around a health system in my phone and then I need health care, it probably would be a logical choice that, you know, my my phone is an arm's distance away and that's going to tug me into that particular health facility as opposed to or health system as opposed to a different one. But what you're saying is that by improving that care coordination, you're also ultimately helping create that brand and that stickiness and reduce network leakage. Are you kind of connecting all those dots together? I am. I am. I, I, it's it's connecting the the mission of healthcare, which is clinical excellence, with the business of healthcare, which I need patients, and the two converge in what I would call patient experience. If you've got a great outcome and a lousy experience, then you had a lousy result. If you have a great outcome and a great experience, you you've hit it out of the park. And I don't know many great experiences where the outcomes are bad, which shows you that you know having a good outcome is. You know, that's the price of admission, but there's a lot of good doctors out there. And, you know, I think in certain geographies, uh, they're all vying for the same patient. How do you identify a good innovation? I mean, there's there's a million ways to skin a cat or solve the same problem. And I'm sure any number of them wind up on your desk. How do you cull through them? And is it gut instinct or do you have some sort of method to your madness? Well, there definitely is a is a method to the madness, but I think uh, if you're familiar with the book Thinking Fast and Slow, uh, you know we we all have the ability to to reach a gut kind of conclusion and then either back it up with more reasoning, or some of us tend to be less willing or reluctant to to go with our gut. I generally, you know, I think you when you look at something, the first thing is, do you understand it? If I have to think too hard and long to understand why it is uh, that a particular offering is important to a customer, then it's probably intuitively not right. But generally speaking, I, I think, you know, you have to, to come back to the, the notion of what's the value proposition? Is it a productivity solution? And I'm talking about B2B here more. Mm -hmm. Does it enable me to do things with less? Is it an administrative efficiency solution? Because everybody wants to be more efficient. And as pressures on cost continue to resonate. And to my earlier point, that's going to be a drag on revenues. Then you have to make that up by being even more productive. So productivity solutions is, a, I think, a very attractive solution category to look in. And the other, as I mentioned, is enhancing revenues. And an enhancement of revenues can come from, I'm able to identify patients that are in need of an appointment and I can automate a reminder to them. So that brings patients into the door. Now, there are lots of different businesses that compete for those kinds of value propositions. And, you know, I think that fundamentally one of the most important things to look at is the net promoter score and what's the extent to which an existing customer would refer or recommend uh, the provider of that particular product or service. Net promoter scores are kind of the analog to patient satisfaction. If you go to your your next door neighbor, or your good buddy, and say, uh, you know, do you have a a knee surgeon that you like? You know, you're probably going to listen to that person more so than uh, a doctor who's referring you to a specialist that you don't really know. 
And where might a person who is curious find the net promoter score for an innovation company? Well, most companies that we look at generally track them because it's such an important variable. I don't know whether they're publicly available, but certainly if you're investing or if you are a prospective customer, I think that's a reasonable line of inquiry. And somebody says they don't have net promoter scores. My question would be why? Because it's so telling. And if somebody is doing really well with their net promoter scores, they'd have no problem letting you have them. I know that one of the things that we had discussed in an earlier conversation was the idea that payers and providers are obviously, you know, they're starting to hook up. In fact, in three weeks, I'm talking to Dr. Chris Smith, who is part of uh, Northwell Health Systems uh, foray into both combined payer and provider. You know, similarly, we're getting a lot of technology solutions that are crossing that chasm and jumping from providers to payers and back and forth as the incentives start to align. Are you seeing that as a thing? (laughs) And what impact do you think it's going to have or what are some notable notes? Well, I I do see it as a thing. And, you know, you you only have to look as far as uh, United Healthcare, for example, uh, you know, the largest payer in the country who uh, continues to make acquisitions of, of, of providers and uh, uh, care delivery firms. And so that you have an example there of payers who are looking to, I would say, you know, vertically integrate and go from funding healthcare to delivering healthcare in this ecosystem. That would be an example of, you know, really uh, integrating the, the value chain. And, and then you also have providers who are starting to assume risk. And when they assume risk, uh, they're looking more and more like payers. And so what we really have in particular geographies is this competition where, and let's just you know, take a fictional state that has a very large Blue Cross plan. Let's say they pay 80% of the claims and you have a, a very large multi-specialty physician practice to the extent that that practice, which could encompass as many as you know, 400 physicians, wants to start thinking about taking on risk, then they are now a competitive threat to some members who might otherwise be insured by Blue Cross. And so Blue Cross can fight that by strengthening its member engagement capabilities so that members really enjoy being with Blue Cross. That hasn't worked too well in the past for health plans. So now health plans are thinking they need to help offset some of the deteriorating margins from their traditional underwriting businesses. So health plans are starting to make investments in technology companies and in providers, while at the same time, providers are saying, I don't like the rates that uh, health plans are forcing on me in order to be in their network. So I'm going to go out and uh, join up with more physicians and then uh, take on my own health plan. Now, I may not have the competency to do that, So I might go engage a third-party administrator to run my health plan for me. And so we're in this new world where, you know, I would say uh, it reminds me of of the movie The Graduate with Dustin Hoffman many, many years ago. I'm dating myself. And uh, uh, the older gentleman says to the character that Dustin Hoffman was playing, I have one word for you, son, plastics. (laughs) This was a a time when plastics was – revolutionizing 
kind of material science. And, you know, it wasn't just wood and glass and metal. Well, I'd say today in, in healthcare, the word is collaboration. It is undeveloped or underdeveloped muscle in healthcare today. And I would say that as we uh, move through uh, this administration and into the future, you're going to see more examples of collaboration because collaboration enables the creation of synergy. If you can use someone else's assets, someone else's brick and mortar cap X, someone else's communication channel to a consumer, and you have an independent, hopefully complementary value proposition, then that ultimately means that you can generate revenue with less expense. And I think to the extent that you see players who appreciate that there may be some other constituent in the ecosystem, that while uh, arguably a competitive threat is really more of a compliment, you're going to see more and more co-opetition. And uh, I think that's going to actually accelerate the realization of um, you know, what we call value in healthcare, which is improved outcomes and lower costs. We can't have it without collaboration. So basically go through your frenemy Rolodex. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That, that, <laughs> That's right. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting uh, is, you know, the old saying from Al Pacino, keep your friends close, your enemies closer. It's amazing if you get to know your enemies, you'll find that they're probably more complementary because focus is going to be key. A lot of players out there are doing a lot of things. And if you figure out what you're exceptionally good at, and maybe you call down the list of things you're doing and just do that that you're exceptionally good at, there may be another player in the market that is exceptionally good at something a little bit different. And together, you're both exceptionally good at a variety of things that enables you to capture more revenue. So it's this is an interesting time in healthcare. I don't think we've seen as many examples of collaboration in the last 10 years as we'll see in the next 10 years for sure. That's um a good takeaway, a good place to end this interview on that very promising, yeah, yeah promising, on promising that, note. On that promising note, but it's also, you know, it could be the the secret tip that we're all looking for here. So, eyeball collaboration as this springboard to um, perhaps a great opportunity. <laughs> I thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Mark. Well, it was my pleasure. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week, the episode is automatically sent to you, so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.